Hello, my name is John Faithful Hamer, and I'm interviewing Albert Nuremberg, who is a laughologist, hypnotist, journalist, documentary filmmaker, and all-around interesting guy. <laughs> so, Could be worse. I teach philosophy at John Abbott College. So we're talking now about the theory that what we see of the world is a simulation, and I was just telling Albert that I don't buy the strong version of this theory, which says that we are just completely in a simulation. I recognize that it's possible that we're just in a simulation, but I seriously doubt it for the reasons that you mentioned, the salience of our experience of the world. The version of it that I find much more convincing is an attenuated version, which says that the real world is out there, um, but we don't have direct access to it. Right? So we have what we see is what we evolved to see because it was necessary for our survival. Right? So that's the way evolution works. You see and you experience what you need to experience and nothing more because anything more is wasted brain space, wasted energy, and you'll be outcompeted by something that is more of a specialist. Right? So we see a lot of things because it's necessary for us to see them. So we have, we see the things in this room, we see the things in the world, the sand between your fingers, that is completely real, a kiss is real, you're real, I'm real in the world, but there's a lot that we're seeing which is a function of the simulation. Right? A lot of ideology, the way we believe in various religious ideas, social ideas, uh, the way we believe in money, all of these things are a function of the, the simulation. So you met the guy that actually popularized this? Yeah, just by chance at a conference uh, uh, in Toronto, I met uh, the guy. It's a, a scientist from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Well, I guess we should look up his name. But um, actually, very nice guy, very easy to uh, talk to. Um, and of course, I mean, everywhere the guy goes, people are like, they're... Um, they challenge him. They're like, come on, this can't all be a simulation. How about I simulate a, a punch in your face? Or how about, I, <laughs> how about another beer? Or it's all a simulation anyways. But what, what I said to him was I said that I don't know, like I see the appeal of the idea that now with like when we look at television or virtual reality, that we're like, that's kind of heading in the direction of the same way we experience our senses. And couldn't you just use like a little more advanced technology to replace all our sensory experiences, which means if we hacked into like some part of our brains, you can see that we could, this all could be a simulation. This whole show, like people are like sitting at home now and they're going, what? Ah, I'm a simulation. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not a simulation. And the reason why we're not simulations, I said to him passionately, I said, there's too much salience. You can feel such texture. You can feel that the ripples in your fingers, you can feel a light breeze in the side of your face, a, a beautiful velvet of a kiss. You can feel yourself breathing and, and, and breathing in just a slight trace of lavender. It's so subtle, these, so many subtle experiences that couldn't be simulated. That couldn't be somebody drawing that up, cooking it up, programming you to feel. And he said to me, and which shocked me to the core, <laughs> was he said, the computing power of the human brain is roughly on par to a current laptop. Except, right? yes, except the brain is much better at cooling than a laptop. A laptop needs more equipment to cool. But so, meaning the amount 
what we experienced, Velvet Kiss running in the rain, uh, you know, an argument in the middle of the night, all those textured, subtle, mixed up things are, are not that uh, high def. They're actually kind of mid def or can be, could be recreated digitally by technology that's not that far ahead of what we have now. Well, I guess we'll see. I don't, I don't know what that... <laughs> it's all a I, simulation, I, damn it! But I, I think it has interesting implications for understanding why we have the persistence of things like tribalism and religion and ideology, why we have strong tendencies for this. Because uh, Dean Hamer, no relation of mine, the guy who is famous for discovering the gay gene, he's been working for the last 15 years on what he calls the religious gene. And he believes that there are some people that have a predisposition towards um, having religious experiences. So if they go through the rituals, if they do the, the sort of prostrations, the prayers, they go through the motions of a religious service, they get a buzz off of it. They get, they're very likely to have transcendent experiences. And he says this is very fascinating from an evolutionary standpoint because some an animal that is prone to delusion, generally speaking, is an animal that goes extinct. So you have to ask the question, why would human beings have a strong or a very large percentage of them have a strong propensity towards religiosity? And the answer appears to be, this is what the social psychologists have been saying for quite a while, who people who believe in group uh, evolution, right? That we, uh, they say that having a tendency towards religiosity means that you will get together with other people who have a tendency towards religiosity and you'll form tight-knit groups that become super tribes that transcend kinship relationships i think super tribe is something that's really hard to defy and i i, I think i can that I, there it is it's super tribes super tribes along very clear lines that uh, and you know when what and who express power one thing about expression of power which a lot of people don't know is that it 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 lowers your neurotic level lowers your level of fear and discomfort so it actually stands to reason that when you mention an evolutionary group that is about to go extinct that they would go out in flame and glory <laughs> because <laughs> because they are acting out their power uh, which they s feel entitled to. And, and so this entirely explains Donald Trump, who, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like it's it. That's what's scary is that the amount of energy released in the uh, before certain outmoded ways of thinking go might be lethal for the planet. Yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned Donald Trump because I I met you first when I was uh, a teenager and you taught me improv at the in Verdun. So I'm wondering, what do you think uh, Donald Trump's success, do you think it has something to do with improv? Yes. In fact, here's what's crazy about Donald Trump. Like he's he, he's not a good businessman. He's not <laughs> a good organizer. Uh, he's definitely not a good leader. Uh, he's not a good human. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a, a devoted racist. Uh, he's uh, yeah, he's a he's a huge jerk. But he's a tremendous improviser. Uh, this guy, this guy is like your local Saturday night improv show guy, <laughs> who like can just 
off the cuff say these limbic. Now, limbic is the emotional brain. He speaks from the emotional brain. I don't know. You know, the Democrats, they, they didn't applaud for me. I don't know. Maybe that's treason. Somebody said it was treason. Somebody. <laughs> who, who is somebody? You. You said it was treason. <laughs> so, so. Um, he's like an so improv can connect with people really well. Okay. Yeah. So the skills of what does improv take one? You can work with any kind of wacky situation. What are you trying to be the wackiest guy in the room? Like that's Donald, my, my biography of Donald Trump, Donald Trump, the wackiest guy in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you Except, watch him in a debate, especially yeah. during the Republican primaries, you are, you watch him in a debate with somebody who is really paying attention to what they're saying and yeah. they, they're working with a script oh. or a teleprompter. He destroys That's them. Right. If they whip out a notepad, they are done. Yeah. Because, and we know I can, the neuroscience is clear. If you're speaking from the limbic action, emotional brain, you can say things much clearer and faster than people who take the extra step to translate things into language. So they're trying to, here's my linguistic breakdown of what's politically corrupt about your uh, history of thinking. And then they're like, yeah, but you're dumb. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist who popularized the Buddhist idea of the, that the, the mind is the, a rider on an elephant. Yeah. Jonathan Haidt would probably say that Donald Trump speaks directly to the elephant. He yeah. doesn't appeal to the to the rational mind, to the reasonable but, mind. He speaks directly to people's emotions, to their fears, and to you know their what? hopes. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually good. It's actually something we all need to learn how to do better, which is speak more emotionally, more directly, and connect our minds with our physical emotions. There's nothing, there's actually nothing wrong with that. One of the problems is that we haven't gone to the next point. We've gone to, a lot of us are people that have used language to try to interpret a more humane, philosophy for our friends and family and wider world but language doesn't explain everything it only explains a very small part of what's going on so our dependence on it weakens us and we're allowed to go to use both or or even just one like trump he speaks only a language of action and emotion which is uh makes him clearer and easy more fun to understand than the next guy do you think he's like a, a method actor? Like, does he get into character as like a certain type of person when he's? See, this is a weird thing. This is this would be my guess. Uh, when you are a rich guy, when you're a rich guy, it is kind of like improv, anyways, because <laughs> because the, one of the first rules of improv is that you sorry you must say yes to other people's suggestion. So by definition, your servants, your assistants, your family are gonna say yes to you. Mm -hmm. You may not learn that skill and that, that that's one of the hardest things that when people are trained in improv, they teach them how to say yes to not block. That's hard for people, but but they get past it. But so but Trump would be around that all the time because everybody's saying yes to him and he just has to imitate that behavior and see that it makes things flow. So so then <laughs> so that's why he would be like an improv guy. And he now I would say he would still be a nightmare to do improv with because good improv people, you might share the flow of where you're going. The stories might be, uh, you know, um, collated together or connected. And with Trump there, it would be always his movie and his story. Yeah, that's it's funny because Plato makes exactly the same point in one of his dialogues, Carmides, and he's trying to understand how Carmides became such a monster. And he was one of the this group of tyrants that took over Athens and killed a lot of people and exiled a lot of people. So he was trying to understand how Carmides, somebody who had studied with Socrates, 
could have turned into such a dick, right? And his, I mean, the answer that emerges from the dialogue is that Carmides is basically very rich, extremely good looking, very charming, very, and so nobody says no to him ever. He gets his way all the time. And, and so he becomes a brat. He becomes a brat who feels just like entitled to do anything. And he doesn't ever, nobody tells him when he's got lettuce between his teeth. Nobody tells him when he's out of line. Right? He can become, this is why, you know, many times people say uh, when you get rich and famous, people like that, often they turn into assholes. And it's, it's even if they didn't start off that way, because you get away with so much bad behavior if you have that kind of power. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, see, I think what I'm saying is it might have, he, that later he becomes a reality show star and he's around actors and a lot of actors know basic improv. So they know like things are more interesting when you flow and reality television also is an improvisational medium. We don't, we want things to happen. So that's one of the skills of an improv performance. They're like, let's make something happen. So all that, and, and, and that's why I think if, if people want to go up against them, they have to be trained in improv or they will always lose. And, and the people that go up against them, like Hillary Clinton, are like the very embodiment of non-spontaneity, literally reading her whole story from a script. Her whole life is her linguistic brain. So you're saying Oprah should go against him, basically, because <laughs> she speaks right from the That's heart. That's right. It's somebody She's very genuine. Somebody She's... like Oprah who speaks the same limbic and improv-based language, but also yeah. has to lean towards fun because, his, like I say, he's the he's the wackiest guy in the room. So so you have to beat him on that level too. I I think. Anyways, you have to beat him on that level. Yeah, oh, she could potentially do it. Yeah, that could work. I, well, a natural one, but I don't think he wants to do it. Or is John Stewart? John Stewart, John Stewart. Is, is trained in that direct speak, and he could do it. I think he's just like, I think he just wants to enjoy his life. You yeah, know, it definitely seems to be the case. Yeah. Right. So I also wanted to ask you about uh, Freud's theory of drugs, right? So you have to Freud, fill me in. Yeah. So basically, Freud's theory is that there's two of the most important psychological breaks that happen when a child is growing up. The first one is when you realize that you and your mother are two separate beings, and that is very traumatic. Yeah. Because at first, Big deal. the belief, the child believes, according to Freud, that that uh, he and his mother are one creature, one thing. Right? But at a certain point, he realizes, no, actually, my mother is a, a separate being that has her own will, and I have my own will, and sometimes what I want and what she wants will not accord. And so I won't get what I want right away. And so then the second big break, according to Freud, and you know you have to think about who he was, right? But um, Freud said the second break is when you realize that the world is not fair, that the world is not just, it doesn't work. It's not a well-ordered machine like your father's house. And that's also a very traumatic uh, break. So he says that people who go through both of those breaks and heal and move on can be grown-ups but people who don't aren't people who don't ever properly heal from, from one or both of those breaks will have a certain weak spot so he says people who don't heal properly from the break with the mother will spend their whole lives trying to get back to that feeling of oneness what they want more than anything else 
from their religion, from their drug experiences, yeah, from any kind. They want to. I want to lose myself. I want to stop being an I. Yeah. I want to just melt into the couch. I want to get so yeah. high that I'm just like one with the waves or yeah. with the and wind. A, and a spiritual take on that would be that you want to be uh, part of universal consciousness, that where you came oh, from. Sure, sure. And he was very critical of Jung uh, to right. some extent because he, in fact, he begins the essay that I'm talking about, which is the future of an illusion. He says that uh, this, the desire, whether you do it through Eastern mysticism whether you do it through uh, meditation through drugs whatever the desire to be one with everything is a fundamentally infantile desire it's not something admirable at all he would say where are you going with this though no i want to know what you would think of thing so he says that uh, if you have that problem if that's your issue you'll be attracted to things opiates to anything that sort of tends to make you just lose yourself into a sea of calm, right? So then the second break where you realize that the world is not fair and you realize that, uh, in fact, sometimes bad people get away with doing bad things. Sometimes good people are not rewarded. And it even gets worse than that because you realize sometimes good people are actually punished for doing the right thing. And sometimes bad people are rewarded for doing the wrong thing. As he said, some people accept that and decide to live as grown-ups in the world and try and make the world a better place in what, whatever way that you can, small way that you can. But other people do not want to face up to this. And so what they are attracted to is any kind of religion or any kind of substance that allows you to live in a world of your own creation. So you either you buy into a religion that says that there is a big father in the sky that is going to spank all of the bad people on Judgment Day and is going to give all the good people uh, a cookie and send them to their reward. And so this becomes a way of saying the world is actually just. It looks unjust, but it actually all the accounts will be settled later on on Judgment Day or a belief in karma, which can affect the same thing. And he also says when it comes to drugs, these are the people that will uh, tend to be attracted to alcohol or to weed, things that allow you to just live in a creative world of your own making. So I was wondering what you think of that. I was going to say, like, I, I don't I don't know. Like, I wouldn't agree that that like, I mean, I think those are factors. Um, I don't think like what I what I know about addiction is that I don't think that uh, the disruption of those particular uh, uh, connections uh drive addiction uh, what i think is interesting like i think this area is very confusing because and it's probably because the reality is complicated but what i think is intriguing is that they're discovering all these weird aspects of dopamine so dopamine is the clear driver of addiction it's all, it's cl- driving all the things you're talking about the reward system and they they, they have these very mundane understandings of more of the reward system they're like you know, when somebody hugs you, you get a little <laughs> splurt of, of dopamine, which makes you feel rewarded. Unless you're Canadian and you get uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But your dopamine is moderated by some stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine. And, and so what, what I think is intriguing is like I just saw this study that said that every time your dog, if you're a dog owner, every time you and your dog make eye contact, you both get a dopamine reward. 
and it must be a fairly subtle one or of a different and what you realize and this is what something like stoners understand is that yes there's a dopamine reward system but it, it is the rainbow it has so many ranges of levels of kinds of reward. It's, it's it's its own world. Like I mean, if you watch a movie, all throughout you're getting dopamine rewards of of various kinds, and this rudimentary concept that there's like one dopamine reward that just does one thing, is limits us all. And I think that addiction is sometimes driven, or the understanding of addictions are like, oh well. Obviously, you become dependent on the dopamine reward from <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> and, and so it's not, I, well, I, I think the question here is like, it, there's a million things I would love to make documentaries about, but I think a great documentary would be dopamine. Like <laughs> the, the, uh, the nature of reward and how reward ruins us and creates us. You know, it's, it's, it's a really amazing thing. Well, do you think, because one thing, I mean, we've discussed this in the past before, do you think it's strange that drugs seem to be kind of tailored to certain personalities? Like some people seem to have a predisposition towards addiction to this substance, but not that substance. Yes. Right. So what do you think is going on there? Okay. Well, I'm working on a film right now where like, like I, I, I like making films where about all, all about like, it's all one thing. It's all one thing. <laughs> and this, this film is about behavior. I think that, Everything, including even drug experiences, are actually behavior. Or you can use behavior to get back into a drug experience. So, for example, cocaine. Cocaine is famously like a peak experience. Like, you're standing on top of Victoria Falls. <laughs> There's a fucking spaceship flying towards you. <laughs> Tom Cruise is jumping, gets yeah. put on his hand. You, at that point, you're like, I'm having a peak experience. Yeah. That is some of the aspect of cocaine. Now, you can go into the world and you can recreate that. Heroin would be like, you know, intense, overwhelming, calm. Uh, ecstasy is uh, warm, uh, bonding, high serotonin release with somebody you care about. All the, they all have behavioral antecedents. Sometimes they uh, puff up, you know, and maybe over what would be natural, but they're all behavior in the end. And it makes sense that the most beautiful things, sorry, would be behavior. Why would they be just the thing? Why would it be a big fat blob of <laughs> dopamine right in the face? You know. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, what is your latest movie about? The one you're editing right now. So, um, uh, we're just finishing a film called "You Are What You Act," uh, and um, it's basically the idea. Like, I was struck by the idea that it's different. Like, everyone knows, you know, you are what you eat, and it's important <laughs> what you eat. But, but people talk a lot more about your behavior than what you eat. Like, you don't have people saying. You know, I don't, John, I don't know if I like you that much because you're always eating <laughs> roast beef sandwiches or you're always like... They're tasty. Leave me alone. <laughs> like, How much pizza do you need to eat, John? And uh, <laughs> that's not... But, but people are like, you behaved like this or you did that. It's, it's your actions that actually affect other people more and affect you. And nobody's really looked into the question of maybe you also are what you act. That, you know, if you act uh, confident during the day, you become chemically more confident. If you act uh, happier, and I know this from laughter work, if you act happier, uh, it tends to stay with you. You tend to look on the bright side as a side effect. People say, I see that you've been happy for a little while. Are there any <laughs> side effects? Yes, I've been feeling optimistic in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> But what do, you, what do you say to people who complain that this is fake, that somehow ah. this is like, 
you're not being because if I mean we're all still living yes. under the shadow of romanticism, which yes. tells us we need to be authentic, okay. genuine, authentic. You know. Okay, this is why authentic is a dangerous word because what really okay what one thing it took me a while to figure this out, but what the system needs to do when the system says there's a point in your life that everyone faces now everyone a point in your life when somebody says to you and looks at you in the eye and says. What are you going to do with your life? <laughs> <laughs> and what they mean is, what what is the? I'm gonna watch YouTube videos. <laughs> the, the one role in my underwear. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, the one role that you are going to assume. I plan to become an IT specialist, or you know, I'd like to become a professor, John Abbott College, and <laughs> like the one thing. And our society requires that you get you get corralled into one role only and also it's just better like go be a good farmer don't be the farmer puppeteer don't be the <laughs> this the rocket scientist jazz musician we want you to be one thing because it's like our, it's a general concept of efficiency and and accomplishment plus if people play more than one role they start to see themselves differently so this authenticity thing is a lie a limiting crappy old concept that you are only one thing and then people are like hey i saw you acting differently the other day <laughs> is that the real you are you running away from yourself <laughs> yeah well it's it can be right i mean that's uh, as the new york philosopher aaron haspel says that generally speaking when people try and better themselves the biggest objection is people say well you're being pretentious yeah right there you're being you're putting on airs mm. or when people try and get out of a kind of a rough neighborhood or I, I've heard this from people trying to get out of like Verdun or trying to yeah. get out of like a res or something like that. They'll yeah. say, oh, you you think you're all that. You think you're all that. Who and do you'll you get this, think I, you are? Yeah, who do you think big, you are, right? Big French. Yeah. <laughs> big French. And they'll try to like college professor. Sort of drag you. <laughs> I mean, definitely to go back to the substance abuse thing, the, the saddest example I've seen of that is when you have somebody that is struggling with a really bad addiction problem, they're People alcoholic say, and they try and they try and quit and it's the people who they consider their best friends become very often their worst enemies because they want to drag them back into that behavior because them quitting drinking calls into question their own decisions, right? Which makes them uncomfortable. They don't like that. So and you know, that, but, that would be a very clear example of it. This is this weird thing. I think it's an, anyway. So the, the, you asked me about the film, and the film is about, partially about the idea of what happens when you start looking at the way role and behavior changes people. So some very famous historical examples: Stanford Prison Experiment took random people, dressed some of them up as prison guards, the other ones as prisoners, and the prison guards who were just students started to abuse the the, the prisoners. And it was an example of that role changes people. But I, I don't want to give away the film too much, but we get into a whole bunch of other dramatic ways that role and or behavior very directly because there's a bunch of behaviors that we know are universal. For example, the victory pose. <laughs> yeah! The victory pose is, when, is a universal pose where people basically throw up their arms or just simply expand explosively in space. That is a universal pose. Every, there is not a culture or civilization on this planet that doesn't do the victory pose. And they all do it at different times, sometimes for different reasons, but it's very big and wide open. And, and, it, and if you look at concerts and things like that, everybody is doing the victory pose. Did they win? No. Like they're, they're listening to Bon Jovi. Did they win? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the one of the most famous TED Talks is that one by Amy Cuddy, right. who used to work at Harvard, and she talked all about power posing. And then she was one of the many... She got in trouble. Yeah, one of the many social scientists that got in trouble recently when people started trying to replicate their studies and found out that many of them just couldn't pass muster. That was a gigantic nerdgasm. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, I think there's going to be a new <laughs> entry in the Urban Dictionary no, tomorrow from Albert Nuremberg. <laughs> Nerdgasm by Albert Nuremberg. They're basically a bunch of, I think, mostly male professors, but sometimes female professors got together and said, this idea that your pose gestures uh, can affect your confidence levels or how you're perceived is just like a kind of a fiction. It's wishful thinking. It's not really there. Um, and and it failed to replicate because she did make a mistake. She said that there was detectable increases in blood testosterone the moment you power pose. And that's not true. There's, it's not detectable or it's not, it didn't work out in other samples. So her explanation, which is quite correct, is that a bunch of, it's, it's proven about, within psychology, it's in question. Within a bunch of other sciences, it's very clear that it's pretty that posture like we know this with the study of alpha animals that alpha animals are always do these power posing postures and they are totally understood by the other animal and every actor knows this every actor knows that power posing is real because you know when people say that was a powerful performance they can feel the 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 those qualities of it so it's not that's what's weird they tr the Amy Cuddy invented something new, and the scientific establishment came along and said, there's nothing new here. <laughs> nothing. No, no, nothing new. Yeah, well, I think she took a stab at explaining what the mechanism was. Right, and she, and was, she was wrong. And she yeah, was wrong. It would, maybe it would have been better if she just went for a sort of phenomenological approach and just say, look, this is what I see that this is happening, and here is how it seems to be happening. This is what it looks yeah. like. And rather than trying to explain the mechanism, maybe that would have been, you know, because very often it advances in science, advances in lots of things happen because people stop trying to explain how something's happening. And, and they just do it. They just, they, they just, just do it. They talk about what they're actually seeing. Yeah. Right? Like Galileo talking about what things actually look like, right? And talking Newton talking about what do they actually look like from the outside? rather than immediately going to the explanation, right? Because, I mean, that's the one of the big blind spots. It's the great strength of, of our species. We have these phenomenal capacity for imagination. We're very, very good at coming up with narratives to explain things, to confabulate on the spot. But you know what else we're really good at, which we don't what? get credit for? Okay, every once in a while, people are always writing this cliche. It's a meme. They're like, oh, humans. We're so terrible. We just can't get along. We're always fighting. <laughs> we're all so sh we're all such jerks. Now, I think there is some truth to that, but if you actually put it in a historical context, just go back in evolution a few ten hundreds of thousands of years, you've got weird Oh, you don't even have to go that far. Right, you've got you've got <laughs> monkey people and monkeys and primates, you can't even put more than 20 of them in a room. No. You know, I've been to a concert with uh, 100,000 people. So I, nobody, yeah. somebody maybe stepped on somebody's foot. That's, there's a lot of civility generally. In fact, the, 
the you know the the expectation should be we are actually extremely good at getting along oh yeah uh we just don't and now more so than ever before right. in our history that's yeah. right we can we socialize in much more in my lifetime i've seen how people be, have become more social um so so yeah it's not true that we're you know huge jerks or maybe huge jerks for other reasons well i think the main reason that we're jerks is that <laughs> For most of our history, Why we're jerks with John Hamer. Yeah, exactly. For the vast the majority show. of our history, we lived in small groups. Yeah. Of you know thirty to you know one hundred and fifty individuals. That's why they small say small groups. You can tribal, only know, right? Know one hundred and fifty people or something like that. Yeah, apparently that's the average. But we lived in small groups, so we are by nature very, very tribal. Right? So if we see somebody that we don't know, we yeah. automatically. Our, our knee-jerk response for most of us is to for that to be a stressful experience, yeah. which yeah. is why uh, when you have big gatherings like a sports game or a rock concert or something like that, very often alcohol has been involved. And it's, it's no that. accident that the rise of alcohol as a drug has corresponded with the agricultural revolution all over the place, Wait, which is... Well, with the agricultural revolution, we started being able to sustain larger populations, more concentrated in towns. And so suddenly you had people living with other people in very large numbers like never before. Right. And so drinking is one of those things that allows people to get over their natural inhibitions towards interacting with strangers. I mean, this is like Susan Cain in her book, Quiet. She says, when somebody hands you a glass of beer what they should really say is here's a cup of extra version right <laughs> so it like it helps you to that's right? a good name for a beer name extra, extra version <laughs> beer you're out with the boys and you're time to say what you really think yeah exactly you're a horse's ass <laughs> i've been drinking extra version beer. well you gotta you know the, i'll take another one the doses in the poison <laughs> or the poisons in the dose it depends if you have too much right then you yeah, get I'm, so extroverted you're just an asshole but this is um, the most extroverted the beer uh, I've ever had. but it's funny when you see societies that are really really uptight like Sort of, you see, like in Finland, for instance, you right? Seem, like they drink like crazy. You seem quiet. Can I get you an extra version <laughs> beer? And these, I've, I've drank with Finns, and it's hilarious. <laughs> They'll do like all these shots of vodka, and you know, most people would bear, barely be able to walk, you know, or anything, but they're completely fine. And this gives them the confidence to look you in the eyes and say, "Hello, but my name is Gauko." <laughs> like, but you're, you're dead right. That that um. Alcohol's role and falsely actually here's an interesting thing. So people are always told like and I felt this too that when you're shy and you're not feeling confident to have a couple beers and it is true like it is a fairly a, a somewhat effective relaxant but you know a breathing exercise and then also everything else they teach you in life is that when you have like a problem that you should solve like let's say you're afraid to socialize or something like that should you manage it with a strange t substance that's similar to <laughs> a paint solvent? Ah, I'm feeling a little bit socially awkward. Maybe I'll ingest some paint solvent. Hi. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, every human group that we know of in all different continents, different historical periods have been getting themselves fucked up in one way or another but we know so, why it's actually it's interesting why and it's not talk, discussed enough you know there's these there's actually quite pretty f interesting films about 
um, fruit falling off. You see it more in Africa. It would have happened here when you had the rise of apple trees and orchards, which have been would have been overly done as a, with the rise of sort of rural uh, civilizations. That the, as the fruit falls, it falls on the ground. It's not all. Some of it ferments on the ground, and so you can accidentally get drunk, or you also you have. You don't have any fresh apples. You only have old, rotten apples. So you're like, <laughs> oh, I guess that's what we're having. And then, then you're like howling at the moon and mooning the, <laughs> the town square. And <laughs> so, well, I mean, but I've seen animals get drunk. I've seen squirrels get drunk. Yes. I've seen bears. It's a naturally get occurring drunk, thing. Raccoons. It's, it's naturally so. occurring in the in the environment. Yeah. Drunkenness. Yeah, and if they have access, repeated access to it. They can act, it can be habit forming. They yeah. actually really like it. So yeah. they'll, they'll go back to it. Right. So I know you've claimed that you can actually have a alcohol free bar. How do you do that? Uh, OK, well, this is like a, um, uh, a, show, a project I am involved with called the hypnotic bar. And the idea <laughs> is, is that I noticed that in trance states. So these are, you know, the deeper hypnotic states people can experience um, drug states and virtually any of them. I would say it takes a bit of work because, um, so let's say ecstasy. So I, I hypnotize people to re-experience ecstasy. I assure you, some of the people that do it get very close or have the experience. Wow. So where the, do I sign up? <laughs> it requires the, there's only one catch, which is it requires a, a, a certain depth of trance, which is pretty deep, but about 20% of people can do it. So, I can take a group of 100 people. Out of them, I can find about 20 or 25. And those people, you can put them in the deep trance, obviously with their consent. And then they can experience different drug effects, partly done with behavior. So ecstasy, the way you would do it, the way I do it, is I you know, saw research that shows that um, gentle eye contact between people who are compassionate towards each other, so people sitting across from each other, is produces uh, serotonin. Hmm. And one of the rules of, of hypnosis is that if you have something, you can turn it up. So if I've just got a little bit of serotonin and then the person's in a very suggestible state, it's not hard to just bring it up. So you, you have two people that are already relaxed. You have them look in, the, look in their eyes. You have them experience sort of basic eye gazing where they feel warm, nice, sort of vulnerable feeling. And then you say, hey, take that feeling, turn it up. And, or you use other, other means to pray, maybe put them into that up state then they get close so i started thinking i did this as a bunch of tests with different groups and uh, different organizations and i thought you could actually have a bar where people go <laughs> they could be hypnotized by robots but it would be better if they're hypnotized by people where they get hypnotized by robots and they would say you would shoot make a selection of what altered state would you like to be in and you'd be like i'd like to feel like i have three beers and you smoke one joint and uh and uh, uh, and maybe uh, whiskey or something like that. So you choose that state, and then you are hypnotized in back into that state, and then you are allowed to roam freely, probably with some instructions to respect everyone else and be loving and positive or whatever it is. And then you just wander around in your altered state, and you don't have any alcohol or any drugs in you. You just have the hopefully positive uh, effects that are produced by behavior and trance. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, I, I thought tantric sex where you have <laughs> orgasmless sex was weird, but, uh, yeah. you know, alcohol free drunkenness. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's pretty wild. But I know that there is like a sort of, you know, Pavlovian thing where if you have an association to a particular situation or a particular person 
or a particular music very often can do this, right? If you, let's say you, like for instance, there's this one song by Daft Punk called One More Time. And I heard this song for the first time in a particular con like a rave context, right? And I, it, it was a very ecstatic, amazing experience with a bunch of people dancing all night till the sun came up. And, and so, and then very often afterwards, when I would, whenever I would hear that song, it would be in a similarly amazing situation. So now, even, you know, going on like 20 years later, when I hear just the first little bit of that song, I immediately get like a rush of something. I don't know if it's dopamine, but I get this rush of emotion and I feel in an amazing mood. And so if I'm before I'm sort of teaching, it's in the morning and I'm just really not in a good headspace to be going to teach in my office, I'll close my office and close the blinds and I'll put on like yeah. a song like Daft Punk one more time yeah. and I'll listen to it and dance yeah. around like an idiot in yeah. my office for Get like 30 body. seconds. Yes. And then I'll go and teach my class and I'm like in the zone, right? So you're probably how, why is that working? Because I would guess that you're recreating, uh, uh, well, first of all, the, like again, on the theme of reward, that reward is much more complex and beautiful than it's presented as being. Like it's not just dopamine. It's just like same reason stress is not just cortisol. The, the people are always like, oh, that's the stress hormone, cortisol, as if it's all one, there's so much, so many different kinds of stress. And I'm sure that cortisol as a compound is evident maybe chemically in those conditions, but it's they, they're missing huge parts of the story. So, so I think that uh, like with music, music engages in a neurochemical way you can get high on a song oh absolutely and and i, I and, and it's an, i totally agree with the, you know the frederick nietzsche he says without music life would be a mistake i, I, yeah, totally, yeah. I totally buy that yeah, yeah. So you think it's that's a like a neurological thing that's going on there? Absolutely. I think people are just more aware of it. I think it's one of the effects of actually drugs because people journey in drug states. And so they're now aware that they journey through other experiences. So you're in the car, like driving home in a particularly memorable song. Like I recently rediscovered this song. What's it called? Um, I, I forgot the name of it, but I was I was struck by how emotional and, and powerful it was and how much it was like uh, like a drug state, even though it doesn't, you know, it's not like, uh, it certainly doesn't stop you from driving. It, it has, it can be very controlled. And that's, I think, um, one of our problems in our world is that we are binge users of drugs. So all our experiences are always extreme and we don't recognize that there's a lot of power in the subtle spectrum of experience. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, what do you think about the whole theory of flow? You know, like Jake sent me high, like he says that, uh, people ask themselves, am I happy? Am I happy? Am I having a good time? And that actually bums them out way more. And that, in fact, Csikszentmihalyi says that people who are, generally speaking, really healthy and happy mentally are people that, on a regular basis, forget about time. They, do, they engage in some sort of activity, yes. which whether it be like yes. playing video games or whether it be driving. That makes sense. Driving forget about a, time. Yeah. yeah, and just like sort of get yeah. into get into a zone where you're yeah, just you're to... having so much fun that you forget about time. Sure, like... just listen to the podcast. Forget about <laughs> forget about time. Just let time go. Well, do we maybe <laughs> maybe we want to forget about time? No, but it makes sense because time is a uh, illusion. In fact, so, here's a weird thing. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of things you, you want to ask why nobody's done the history of, and. Uh, 
And one of, one of the bizarre theories is that, so for example, this is a really good example of this is the education system. Nobody really knows the history of the education system. They know it came from Prussia. They know it was very industrial. And for some reason, it was in, then imposed on the entire planet when it didn't, you know, there was no reason necessarily to do that. Similarly, time. Nobody really knows the history of time and that it's arguably like a weird, it's a, they, they're pretty sure it's a Roman invention that the calendar system and the structural limited feeling we have about time, n never having enough time is based on the tithing uh, calendar of the Romans. And so people are like, oh, the Roman Empire, it <laughs> fell a long time ago, except they, they've, left us, they've left us with their system of time. And, <laughs> and we I always thought of it as a much more modern invention no. with like modernity, with mechanization. With no, the clocks, whole thing about like what the, right? this idea that you owe somebody something like you owe your, your life is cut up into months. That's the Roman Empire. That's their great invention. That's why they, probably why they reached because they could, well the Inca had months and days and years. They had all they had all that. But they were after that, and and uh, so 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 I think that that. But you're right. It might have been other people might have figured out similar things. But I think the idea that they like the idea that Romans would go to like the to Spain. They'd find some sad sack farmer and they'd be like, you didn't pay the monthly tithing. <laughs> and then the farmer would be like, what? what? That's absurd. I, I, yeah. I'm just here with my donkeys. And yeah. No, I, I, think, I think the real issue is that the way we experience time and space emotionally does not accord with the way that a clock experiences time or the way that what have a you measuring ever stick, like, I suggest you get a clock for your podcast interview <laughs> interview a clock you like to see how they feel no I mean you like uh, my friend John Louis is a map maker and he's a, he's got an amazing sort of niche market he makes these sort of cartoonish maps. in fact if you've gone to Granby Zoo and you get like the map that shows you where everything is or Park Safari or many other places he makes these maps and the the genius of them is that he realized that the way in which we experience space is does not correlate to actual space. So it may be that something is, yeah, that let's is, say, a 10-minute walk. Yeah. But because of the way it is, it doesn't feel like a 10-minute walk. Of course. That's why you right? bang your head on things. You're like, that's why you're like, I didn't know that that cupboard was there and because <laughs> your your view you think i've got a totally accurate view of things but you're constantly being in fact it's in our film you are what you act we talk about this is, i call it the law of action the law of action is that your perception of the world is distorted by the action you are taking and both in action and reaction to it. So if I am angry, I will start thinking that this is an angry world. Like, who's this guy? What's the guy with the podcast? Fucking guy. And if you are smiling, you tend to see that other people, wait, it's a nice world. It's such, yeah. hey, look, there's a pigeon. And, and, uh, and if you, of course, if you are fearful, you're like, oh, where's the show what's the show about <laughs> yeah i know that's why it's funny that modern science one of the things about it that is you know totally true but really counterintuitive is the idea that there are all these things happening in the world that have nothing to do with us because if you look at our our ancestors and this is you know all over the place it's not just our sort of judeo-christian ancestors it's it's all over the place if there was a big storm that killed a bunch of people, if there was a flood, if there was an earthquake, if there was a great you know, fire, if something really bad happened, they automatically assumed 
that it was because the gods were mad at them that god was, that they had done something wrong and then they would sit there and they would try and figure out i mean you can see this in the in the story in the bible about jonah right so jonah is like God says, okay, I want you to go preach to Nineveh. And he's like, well, fuck that. I don't want to do that. They're going to kill me. I, I see how they treat prophets. I don't want to be a part of that. So he tries to escape. Right now, we, we might think that's kind of funny, but uh, it made sense in his time because there were many gods and gods had jurisdiction. So it's like, I'm about to be arrested for a crime in Canada. If I can make it over the state line, you know, if I can make it into the States or if I can make it, then I'll be out of Canada's jurisdiction and they won't be able to come after me. And so Jehovah was like Zeus was an angry sky god, Middle Eastern sky god who lived at the top of a mountain. So Jonah thinks, all right, I'm going to get away from the call of God. So he goes and takes a boat. And of course, he's sleeping on the boat and a huge storm comes. And what do the sailors do? They automatically assume, oh my God, who pissed off Poseidon? Who pissed off, you know, the, the sea god? It never even occurs to them for a second that the storm could have nothing to do with them. It's just a storm. It would have happened even if you weren't there, even if you stayed, you know, a dog. You know, you know, and so they automatically and they go and ask you, did you did you piss off the God? Did you piss off the God? And finally, they wake up this guy who, for some crazy reason, is sleeping through the whole thing, Jonah. And he says, oh, my bad. Yep, I did. And so they <laughs> throw him out of the sh out of the boat into the water. So he gets eaten by a whale. <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as he is thrown out of the boat, the storm stops. Right. So they would. But the thing they is, did is the, those and they stories, did their math. They did their math. Exactly They're like, what you're saying. Those stories appeal to us emotionally because it, it's true. When you're in love, when you're really in love or I guess, you know, really high, maybe that's the same thing. Uh, you walk around and it seems like the whole world is this beautiful place that is kind of like a musical where everything's turning around and singing to you. That would you, be great, right? actually. If you and did, like if you, you say, when a, a you're musical. really kind of angry and pissed off and depressed. I don't think it is like that, but that would be good if, you, if your day was like a musical. <laughs> you're like, ah, morning time. And then the birds start going, cheep, cheep, you know, the fields are alive. <laughs> yeah, that would be terrifying, actually. But. No, we have a tendency to project whatever we're feeling onto the world and then to, to see that, right? And we probably do that to other people too. And that's what your whole acting thing, I think that's its great strength is that very often the way that you, what you put out there, that's what people give back to you, right? I mean, that's There's also an important thing to say about this is a lot of this is a play behavior. Actually, acting is also stands in for play and play stands in for acting. Because it's like it's like it's the original simulation when theater was the original simulation. It's like, remember that time that you were a big jerk? Well, I wrote a play about it. <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> actors. Yeah. yeah. And, and remember that, you know, so the play was the original simulation, which stood in for reality. And we are very good. We just have to watch actors for a few seconds. And right away, we're like, yeah, I'm I'm them. And. And so that effect uh, makes uh, it very powerful. But it, the, the key thing is that it's play, that you're not fighting, you're not hurting each other, that we have the capacity to sit and watch a weird story without stealing each other's food or doing something terrible. And, and that's why it, it, it's sort of by hook or by crook, it's a good thing. And you have to question this suppression of acting by the Authenticity Brigade. <laughs> oh, is that authentic? And... Uh, <laughs> 
Well, it's it's dangerous, right? Because the more that you, if you act and you think about different scenarios, then you can possibly think of scenarios that would challenge the status quo in various ways. There's another side to it too, is that when you act and you are embodied, you live a more action-based lifestyle and um, where you're just more physical. And if everybody, if the citizenry was like, felt was living in their bodies and saw like upsetting or scary things, um, they would react differently than if they were not in their bodies, which is how people are. They're like, oh, look, climate change. There's a gathering storm that should likely produce our extinction. Do you have any more Cheetos? (laughs) (laughs) I've been wanting to ask you this for years. Do you think, generally speaking, do you think nature or evolution wants us to be happy? Do you think like our, our default state most of us is to be happy or do you think because i've heard really interesting arguments in both directions i've heard some people say that actually the only way you can really be happy is to to hack your system because your system is actually has been designed by evolution to be sort of dissatisfied and to want more because that's good for the species that's good for your genes but it's maybe not good for your mental state i can give a pretty direct answer to that I think I think what is interesting is like I don't I I haven't done a lot of research uh, about this, but I did a few uh, I I covered a few studies that were uh, kind of intriguing about the way the brain evolved. And uh, this is why ayahuasca as a drug is interesting, because it seems like ayahuasca as an experience moves in the direction that the brain evolves. So it starts in the very back of the head and moves forward. And this arc, this beautiful arc, apparently not well known of the way the brain moves forward. So you got to understand a crazy thing happened. Like the scientists will say this like a million years ago, a million years ago, or even probably less, this part of the human brain exploded. Thermonuclear neuron explosion of massive growth of the front part of the brain, abstract thinking tools, but maybe also all kinds of weird play behaviors and strange adaptations and probably stoner experiences, like <laughs> a rainbow of, of, of experiences. So you have this massive explosion and literally what the brain did apparently is it started in the back, the fear center, moves forward into the emotional center and then goes straight towards the front of the skull. The brain goes go like a train and it hit the front of the skull like bam there was like a point where the b- human brain hit the front of its skull and so what did it do it's like where do i go and <laughs> and it was probably like listen to the words of bruce lee who said when you confront something remember to be like water and so what the brain did is it went it curled down it curled down and actually does a kind of loop de loop uh under the um right under by, behind the eyes and so, of course, I was like, there's, a, there's sort of like a weird tip to the brain there. It has a name, I don't, a formal scientific name. And I called a lot of neuroscientists, and I was like, what, what is going on in this, like, the most forward part of the brain? Because the back part of the brain is fear, fear, and, and, uh, <laughs> and cravings and food. And the middle part of the brain is emotions. I love you. And then, the, and then here you've got more abstracts, like, Am I late for my conceptual meeting to design the operational schema of the... So then, and then, okay, then there's another part of the brain, a newer part of the brain that hit the skull and curled underneath. And the best explanation I got from it was somebody, a company that was doing MRI scans for music videos. So their job was they would, somebody would spend millions of dollars to do music videos and they had to make sure that it lit up the reward system, dopamine, dopamine. And so they would... 
they would MRI scan people who were watching the rough edit of the music video to see what part of their brains lit up. And they, I think that they, they were, this is at the time when uh, a Beyonce, I can't remember, one of Beyonce's videos came up, Single Ladies, I think. They, they, they had <laughs> Single Ladies, and they were like, hey, the, at the really fun, crazy part of the video, this part of the brain lights up. And so the, the, what the revelation is, I don't, this is my theory putting this together, I don't know if it's true, that the most advanced part of the brain is the fun brain. <laughs> the fun brain, and I'm not saying this because I'm biased because I'd like to know that. I'd like to believe that, but it makes sense because fun is on some level about weird cosmic interchangeability. Like, hey, look, I'm a duck. <laughs> or, or we're all at the party. It's, it's, there's so many like momentary like um, structural changes in thinking, emotion, and, and, multi, and a range of things going on at the same time emotions experience in out it's all happening that it makes sense that fun would be a very advanced behavior and it makes sense that fun also is pleasant you're not there's no scarcity that you that it's it's a newer thing so to answer your question <laughs> what was your question again no <laughs> <laughs> no i i just to, to loop back to what you're saying before but, i i think the that acting my my pet theory on what acting is about is that we are very we have very powerful imaginations and so when we were you know way back when what and we have language which allows us to share our imaginings with other people and so this allowed us to strategize and so you would have a group together Yuval Harari in his book uh, Sapiens has a wonderful description of this and he says there's a common theory that Homo sapiens sapien you know us that we actually hunted to extinction all the other Neanderthals, uh, all yeah. the other, not just the Neanderthals, all the other species of Homo, all the other humans species of, and he says there's no way that these other species would have been able to compete against us because we have such a sophisticated capacity for abstract thought and for language and for imagination, and acting is very much part of this, yeah, because we would figure out through through observation, trial and error, we would figure out, okay, when you move on a lion, the lion is always, you know, is always going to do one of three things, right? So if you run with a rock, it's going to respond in very predictable ways. If you run at the Neanderthal, it's going to respond in predictable ways if you're trying to hunt. Right. And so they would figure out and they would strategize and they would say, okay, you pretend to be the lion. I'm going to pretend to be like the antelope. Play behavior. Yeah, play behavior. And we're going to strategize. So in a sense, it's like imagine if you're playing uh, football against a team that has only three plays. Right. And you have yes. an infinite number of plays. That's right. And you can study the tapes and look at how they played in previous games. And you'll figure out exactly what their plays are. And you'll prepare I, for them and strategize. Can I say and something? play act. Tesla. That's what Tesla is. Tesla as a corporate, as a company, is like, it's like, a, it's like an advanced species that has way more plays than other, the rest of corporate, the corporate world, which is like, oh, well, this is how long it takes to get something to production. And, um, you know, that there's no way to make sustainable electricity. Like this, they're, all, they're always thinking in terms of limitations. This can't be done and this can't be done. Well, Tesla is like, hey, why not? You know, <laughs> and, and so, so um, yeah, so the, the, it, it's... We, we know that we, that we live in a world of vastly reduced imagination. 
That's there's no doubt about that. It's yeah. a great reason to have a podcast. Talk about <laughs> really strange. Well, ideas. you have to. Unfortunately, very often the way the school system works and the way the education system works is it reduces that imaginative capacity and tries to get you to think. How can we uh, monetize it? <laughs> well, just think in terms of, you know, the same three or four plays, the same kind of yes. you you are given, you're supposed to look at politics and, well, okay, choose between these th three flavors of ice cream. Would you like the libertarian ice cream, the liberal ice cream, the conservative ice cream, or, you know, whatever. So you get these limited kind of ways and they say, well, here's the three available plays, choose one of them, right? And it seems to me that we got to the top of the food chain as a species because we're very good at thinking of brand new plays. I mean, we if you just look at where we're, our we species would, has gone, we would be the freaks. We would yeah. be like, there'd be like the, uh, like the hyenas would be like, we know we're pretty weird and we're pretty scary. <laughs> but those humans with their weird flames and their weird group behavior, that's really freaky. And that, that we'd, be, we'd be really the freaky creatures on the savanna who like mess with perception and uh yeah plus we're kind of vicious and <laughs> so, no but not just vicious we also we know how to move together yes. and coordinated yes i mean barbara ehrenreich in her book dancing in the streets she talks about how the the theory of the origin of dance right yeah, now this is important is stuff. that is that we would practice of course dancing of course as one right and this is why to this day militaries march perfectly in and to, 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 to wild the, animals, it would seem like a giant centipede. That's right. With a hundred legs. Not just centipede, but a, a, a creature that they don't, a freaky creature they don't understand. And they don't have a way, they don't have a frame of reference. They can't go, that's eight tender morsels. <laughs> they instead, they go, that's some, yeah, that's some weird giant spider. Yeah, it's a yeah. giant, giant thing. And we would look like that to them and they would have no way of, you know, and this is usually it's things like, like fish will school in a way that it becomes impossible for a predator to pick one of them out. And they do it very well. They do it very well, right? And you see this also with like pigeons when they flock, flock together and move. Yes. It's really hard for a peregrine falcon to identify one of them to get them. Dopamine right? reward for flocking and herding. That's why <laughs> in, that's why it's a dopamine reward for going to the pub because you're like get, you know getting back in the herd. Well, the amazing thing is that humans do this uh, of our own volition, we set it up. It's a kind of technology, a cultural technology, because it doesn't come naturally in the same way that it does for fish and pigeons. We have to actually, we have to work at it. We have to practice this, <laughs> the square dancing. These soldiers don't just show up and on the first day of boot camp know how to march and step. They have to drill and drill and drill but and practice is, again and again. It is very impressive how well people can match their movements. That's we are we still marvel at that the sophistication of of groups either dancing or marching together it is very impressive and thus that, i think it, i think there was also it was alexander the great that's one of some of the, there were a number of invasions they thought happened entirely because one army was marching so well that when the other army saw the intense sophistication which is also the role of dancing to funk music by the way really yes well is that funk music the more sophisticated as a kind of music it's a kind of highly sophisticated and you know you demonstrating you understand you're the funk is very much um a shared bonding experience like we're understanding the funk together <laughs> and and we're saying that we've, we've arrived at a level of sophistication which we both share which now we have a tribal signature 
and and also it is the way we move across the savannah to our powerful soundtrack unlike your soundtrack which it goes a bit like this all right let's end it there all right thank you very much Albert Nuremberg <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.